we see things, can we agree with this? The way we see things often, appro- often affects our attitudes and our actions. Can you agree with that? Yes. If you see a person, the, if your perspective about a person is wrong, your, not just is your perception of them wrong, but your attitudes and your actions towards them are oftentimes affected by that, right? You ever heard these words? You always, you never. You always do that. You never do this, right? Sometimes those are false perspectives because in truth be known, they don't always and they don't ever. That may not necessarily be true. If you have false perspectives about yourself, you are not going to make proper choices. You're not going to live in certain ways and you're certainly not going to achieve the things that the heaven would have for you if your perspective about yourself and how God sees you is wrong. If your perspective about God is wrong, that is a huge one in the church. Oftentimes we see God as a taskmaster. We see God with a baseball bat who's out to get us. When we do wrong, we think he's going to hunt us down and like hit us on the head. That's what we think, you know. Uh, we, we, he's not like that at all. But our perspectives of God are often wrong. Some churches see God as big brother. Jesus is just my big brother. He's just up there, you know, and he's my pal. So, you know, I'm free. I have no responsibilities. I can do anything I want because, you know, Jesus understands that's not necessarily true. That, again, is a false perspective. Um, We have these these, more of a a loose perspective would be, oh, everybody's saved. No, everybody is not saved. Jesus died for the whole world. Yes, that's true. But not everybody has appropriated that provision. It's just the truth. Not all are saved. Christ has died for all, but not all are born again. So we have to have a paradigm shift. The paradigm is a, is a pattern by which we operate. So there's a pattern. There's a pattern. You keep seeing things the same way. I, um, they, if you want what you never had, you must do what you never think. Einstein said stupidity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting it, the result to be different. Sometimes if our pattern is not producing the results, we have to change the pattern. Not just our pattern of behavior, but our pattern of perspective. Behavior oftentimes is related to perspective. So a paradigm is a pattern by which we operate, by the way which we relate. There's certain ways in which we relate to people that are not always correct. There's certain ways we relate to ourselves that are not always correct. Oh, I always make those mistakes. Oh, I'm so stupid. You know, there's, all, there's certain patterns that we, we, we do that are not healthy. There's certain patterns and ways that we relate towards the Lord that are not correct. So a lens or a grid would be something that's a more modern term. Paradigm is something that's there, but there's also a lens is is something that you see through. Or a grid, you know, you're looking through a grid, you're working through a filter is another way of doing that. And we all do that. And so it's necessary for us to change the way that we see, perceive, and think. The Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What it means is be transformed by shifting and changing your perspective. We are to think and believe on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we are. We are to think and believe and see from the mind of Christ. Not the mind of doctrine, not the mind of denomination. All, doctrine is important, but the doctrine is under the submission of the mind of Christ. If the doctrine does not line up with the mind and the heart of Christ, then something where our interpretation or our understanding of the doctrine is not correct. Problems always with us. So we have some major examples. I'm going to give you a couple major examples of lens changes. Anybody know who Joseph is in the Bible? If you're not familiar with Joseph, I'll tell you. There was a man named Jacob, and he had 12 sons, and one of his sons was named Joseph in the book of Genesis. This story is found from like the, almost the entire ending of the, cha- of the book of Genesis. It's dated, it lasts probably 15 chapters at least. 
is dedicated to the story of, jo- of, story of Jacob and his sons. Joseph was the son of Jacob, and Jacob had a wife who could not have any children. And so oftentimes, this is important for you to understand, that when, the, when God, never, God never told them to have multiple wives, he never told them that. So you're like, well, why do they got four wives in the Bible? Why is that allowed? Well, he ne- first of all, if you read the text, he never told them to have multiple wives. Well, what was a culturally acceptable was that if the wife was barren, they could take a second wife. And because of the second wife, the children, the, 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 the man could continue to bear children. So that was re, re, the real reason why it was allowed, but God never mandated. He didn't say, hey, go out and marry six women. I don't know why anybody would want to marry six women. You know what I'm saying? Anybody that's married knows you got all you can handle with one. You know what I'm saying? So, and it's good. I'm not going to go there, but that's right. Not going there. <laughs> so... Joseph was favored by his father. He was favored because the wife that he married, the first wife that he loved, and there's a whole backstory behind how Joseph ended up with two wives, and, and, um, but I won't get into that. But this Joseph was favored son and, uh, because he, the wife that Joseph really loved, this was her child. And so he was favored. And in him being favored, he had a bit of an attitude. So there was an attitude that Joseph walked around with, and there was a resentment that his brothers walked around with. His brothers hated him because Joseph thought he was all that. And Joseph was favored. And it was because Joseph, his father, Jacob, had a longing for children through Rachel. So he had a longing for children. And when he finally got children through her, he was so, like, excited. And he's so protective of the child that he wanted. He ended up having two children with her. But he, he had Joseph through her, and he was so excited. So he was very protective of, of Joseph and favoring. And so Joseph walked around with an attitude. Yeah, I'm favored. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 37 that Joseph was made to work with his brothers. But every time Joseph worked with his brothers, he would come back home and give his father a bad report. And it looked something like this, you know, man, Judah, Judah's just calling me names out there, Dad. Judah's calling me names, you know. Uh, uh, Dan picked up uh, sheep poop and was throwing it at me, you know. And so he's probably coming back there tattletailing or telling on his brothers and to where his father goes, you know what, you don't need to go out and work anymore. Your brothers are being mean to you. You don't need to work anymore. And so we see a transition from where Joseph, after he was giving bad reports about his brothers, now Joseph doesn't have to work anymore. Judah's being mean to you. You can stay home. And so they put a coat of many colors on him. And Joseph was like, yeah, I don't have to work anymore, yo. I get to stay home. And they would all have to go out into the fields. And so one day, Joseph was sent out by his father to go and find his brothers. And when he went out to find his brothers, his brothers weren't where they were supposed to be. They were in a city, a merchant city called Dothan. And while they were in Dothan, they were probably doing something they weren't supposed to be doing. Because they weren't where they were supposed to be. So Jacob said, go and find, my, bro- go and find your son, my, my sons and see if they're okay. So Joseph goes out to find him, but they're not where they're supposed to be. Where are they? They're in the city. Wow. It's like your teenager running off and going you know, to the South Beach or something like that. You know, they're supposed to be here, and now they're over there. And so that's probably one of the reasons why they hated him is because every time we got to do something, Joseph, you're like ratting us out. So anyway, they go, and as they approach his brothers, the brothers see him coming, and they hate him, and they want to kill him. And so they don't decide to kill him. They decide to throw him in a pit, and they decide to throw and sell him to merchants as a slave and as a servant. 
Well, the backstory behind all of that is not just was Joseph favored by his father, his earthly father. Joseph had a prophetic dream. This dream that was spoken into and over his life showed him as a leader by which his father and mother were bowing down to him and showed him as a leader by which his brothers were bowing down to him. Well, Joseph going, hey, I got a vision. And so he shared the vision with his father and mother. And his dad was like, are you serious? Do you honestly believe that your father and your mother and I are going to bow down to you? And Joseph's like, well, that's the dream. And then he goes and shares with his brothers and his older brothers, Reubens and, Sim- and Levi, were, they, they wanted to kill him. Okay, They wanted blood. So they were like, they hated him because they were like, we are the oldest. Do you honestly believe that we're going to bow down to you? But Joseph shared the prophetic vision that was over his life nonetheless. The problem, the disconnect, ready? The problem is this. The prophetic vision was true, but the paradigm and the lens by which Joseph viewed it was not in alignment. So Joseph views it in the sense that, it's all about me. Man, I have something amazing about me. Heaven sees it. My father sees it. I am awesome. I can't do any wrong. And so lo and behold, Joseph gets thrown and gets sold and he's taken down to Egypt. And long story short, he ends up in prison multiple times, right? For things he didn't do, for words he didn't say, for actions he didn't, he didn't take. Falsely accused, falsely condemned, falsely, all of these things happen. What ends up happening is Joseph in the process of this journey, Joseph is forced to become a servant in a house that he didn't want to serve. He served Potiphar. And he didn't want to serve Potiphar. Potiphar, was, he served him only out of a convenience. His eyes were always over his shoulder looking to go back home. Well, Potiphar's wife, if you know the story, betrays him. You guys know what I'm talking about? She betrayed him. <laughs> he won't lie with me, Joseph. Lie with me. My husband's long at work. Lie with me. You robust, muscular, sinewy, handsome man. Lie with me. The Mishnah says that he said, my God will see and it says she took off her robe. This is the spiritual commentary on the Bible. It says she took off her robe and threw it over, the, over one of the statues in, in her palace and said, no, he won't. And that's when he ran out the door and she grabbed him. This is, this is the spiritual commentary. It's out of the Mishnah. He was favored. He had an attitude. He had a journey. He ends up in prison. And while he's in prison, he starts in, all of these prophetic things start happening to Joseph while he's in prison. And God leaves him there and leaves him there and leaves him there. And Joseph can't understand why. And there's an obscure verse. If you come to this church, you hear me teach it all the time because it is the revelation of the whole life of Joseph. The Bible says one day Pharaoh called for him and Joseph arose. And the Bible says Joseph shaved. Everybody say he shaved. shaved. Yeah, and we're not talking Dollar Shave Club here, right? <laughs> he shaved. Culturally to a Hebrew, that is the worst thing they could do. Hebrews did not shave willingly. Because to shave was to present yourself as a slave. To shave was to present yourself in the most humblest posture. For the first time in Joseph's life, he realized this isn't about me. For the first time in Joseph's life, he realized I must serve others. The mandate, the prophetic lens, the goal of God over my life is not about my glory. It's not about my esteem. It's not about me signing glossies and Uh, selling books, and it's not about that. The mandate that's on my life is to serve greater causes than myself. Joseph shaved. Very important. Next slide. 
And so what happens is Joseph shaved. His lens changes. He realizes that this is not about him. And here's what happened. In order to fulfill his destiny, his prophetic destiny to lead, he had to understand that that must be accompanied with the perspective of servitude. This is a tremendous lens that has to shift within the church. We have lost the understanding of what it means to be a servant. The start of the kingdom is in the heart of, is in the heart of servitude. That's where the kingdom starts. Somebody said it's the, the, the kingdom start is a servant's heart. God's glory is expressed that way. It wasn't that Joseph wasn't gifted. It wasn't that Joseph wasn't favored. It wasn't that Joseph didn't have a prophetic word and a mandate over his life. We got to get the church to actually accept prophetic mandates. That's number one. And then the second thing, that for, that's, get, that's a huge one in and of itself, is to getting the church to actually believe that there's a prophetic mandate over their life. And if you get, get them there, then it's to understand that this prophetic mandate that's over you is not about you. That the gifts and callings that are on your life are not for you. They are for the servitude of causes that are much higher than your own. Because God's got a plan. And that plan is not limited to you. And that plan is not limited to your perspective and your tiny little dot in the history of time. God wants to impact the world through your life. And what ends up happening with Joseph is God, God uses Joseph with his prophetic alignment. So Joseph lines up with the spirit. And when the Pharaoh says, you can interpret dreams, he says, I can't interpret anything. It's the God that I serve. So what did he do? He lined up with the Holy Spirit and realized that my power comes through him. So he had an alignment. So now we've got a flow. And then the second thing he did was he positioned himself to serve. He didn't walk around going, well, it's going to cost you $29.95 if you want me to interpret that dream for you. You got a couple books over there. I got the book over there called The Dream Weaver. Did you read that one yet? You know? My assistant over here is going to give you an anointed prayer cloth. That'll cost you 99. I can bring you to a seminar. And Pharaoh, I can teach you yourself to be, you know, I mean, it wasn't about that. He lowered himself to serve the higher purposes. He saw the anointing on his life. He accepted it and he served through it. It's got to shift. It's got to shift. We have to see that we have an anointing on our lives. You know, the days of kicking the grass and going, oh, poor me. Oh, aren't we a sinner? And oh, my gosh. I mean, I feel like the Lord is so fed up with that attitude. He's so fed up with it. Jesus did not die to leave you a sinner. He didn't die to leave you in the context as, oh, my gosh, I don't know how Jesus saved me at all. Oh, this is such a broken sinner. We live in those histories. He's not into his history, in your history. Jesus is into your destiny. He's not relating to you based upon your history. He's relating to you based upon your destiny. And until the perspective changes and the alignment happens and the attitude adjusts, nothing's going to happen. These are tremendous keys to the power of God. I'm telling you, these are keys to the power of God activating in your life. In order to fulfill his destiny to lead, he had to understand it. He had to align with it. And then he had to understand that the mandate attached to that was to serve others and not use it for his own gain exclusively. It's not that there's no gain in your mandate. There is gain in your mandate. But the gain is not exclusively for you. You understand that? God will take the, God will, he'll leave the anointing with you and he'll go and find another and he'll give the same anointing to another who will use it for his purposes. And he will change and shift a thousand times until he finds someone in a generation who is willing to do it the way that he wants. 
And anything that was achieved through the one that used it for his own gain is going to be dwarfed by the one who will use it for the higher purposes. I'm telling you. He used his leadership to serve. And you know what? Then he could see. This whole passage comes out when his brothers come and see him. And his brothers come and see him. And they're actually bowing down before him. And they don't recognize him. And Joseph is freaking. He's like, what? This is the vision that I've had. And then when he starts relating and reconciling with his brothers, he's like, now I see. This is how the Lord wanted it done. And I didn't get it. And so I had to go through tragedy and conflict and difficulty in order for me to be forged to carry the thing that God has called me to carry. Could it be? Just a thought. He could see now what you meant for evil. I get it. God meant for good. What I meant, he should have said, what I meant for arrogance, see, he hadn't quite reached this point yet. What I meant for arrogance, God meant for servitude. That was really the answer that he should have given, but he projected it back upon his brothers. There's a whole story behind this, and I could really open this up to you, but I don't have the time. In chapter 15, you have the story of the prodigal son. Familiar story. Here's another major lens change. This is important. If you want to read it, it's in Luke chapter 15. You can read it. Some of you are familiar with it. Man had two sons, had an older son, had a younger son. Younger son's doing the field work during the day. He sees his dad's Cadillac. He sees all the things that his father has, the inheritances that are rightfully his. He goes to his father. He says, I want my inheritance. Father didn't deny him his inheritance. He says, it's yours. But he said the boy took, the younger son took the inheritance and began to spend it prodigally, which is wastefully. That's what the word prodigal means, to wander and to waste. Oh, how many Christians take their inheritance and wander and waste it? They have no idea what they actually have. And wandering and wasting what someone worked hard to give. The boy didn't have to work hard for that. The father made it happen. And he took his inheritance, he wandered and wasted it. And he said, and finally he found himself at the end of himself after making poor choices. And it says, he came to himself. That's a lens change, right? His perspective shifted. And he said, wait a second. I don't have to live like this. My father's wealthy. I'm going to go and present him myself to him as a doulos. That's the Greek word for bond slave. Submitted servant. I'm going to go and repay my debt to my father through service and sacrifice. That's what I'm going to do. And so he returns to his father's house. He presents himself as a doulos. Father, I have sinned before heaven and before you. The, Lord, the father stands there and allows the repentance. This is important too. The father allowed the repentance. But what he did not allow was the false identity. Read the story. He cut him off when he was going down the road of a false identity. But he allowed the repentance. I have done wrong before you and before heaven. Yes, you have. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Boom, he cuts him off. He doesn't let him finish the sentence. He doesn't let himself bind himself to the father in the position of a slave because he is not a slave. Come on. That's right. No matter what he did, he's still a son. No matter what he did, he still has inherited rights. No matter what he did. Jesus doesn't see you as you see yourself. Oh, I sinned. Oh, I just got to crawl my way back into church. Well, crawl your way back into church. Repent, Christian. 
Return. That's what the word repent means. I have done wrong, Lord, before you and before the earth. And the Lord's going to go, yes, you have. And to make up for it, I'm gonna, he's not going to accept it. He's going to put a ring on your finger, a robe on your back, and shoes on your feet, and he's going to take you into the party. And he's going to restore you to your rightful position. He couldn't see himself as heaven saw himself. Do you understand this? Do you see the difference? He perceived himself to be something that he was not. He didn't know that the party was always in the father's house. He didn't have to take his inheritance and go and waste it on the street. He didn't have to go and riotously live in another location because the party was always in the father's house to begin with. And then we have his other son, because here we see the problem with the sons, right? The problems with the sons. And we like to say, oh, the prodigal son's a story about a guy who followed Jesus, followed away from him, got into sin, and then came right back to the father. There's so much more to that story, man. I mean, can we elevate the word of God? Can we actually pull on it? Can we actually deepen it? Can we actually swim in it and see what's actually there? Or do we live on the revelation of 50 years ago, man? Well, this is it. There's nothing more to be understood about the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son has been revealed. Has it? Has it? I don't believe so. How unsearchable are your depths, Lord? How unsearchable. So the older son comes. He don't know who he is either. He has no idea who he is. He says, I have been a dutiful son to you. I've crossed my T's and dotted my I's. Bless you, Father. I have done everything you have said to the T. And what's the father do? He acknowledges it. He says, you have. But what you fail to understand is everything is yours. Why haven't you asked me? Oh. It's going to be about four of you are going to get to what I just said there. What you have failed to understand is that everything is yours. Why haven't you asked me? Why haven't you asked me? Don't you know that everything is yours? I was just reading this article, and we, we had a meeting. We're working on the school, so we had a whole bunch of people show up at my house yesterday. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. But, um, but I'd read, I was sharing with them. I read an article yesterday. <clears throat> I was reading this article about how human beings, we have a, uh, we have a bias towards yes. It's kind of like a sales thing. But you, you, the idea is to try to, what the guy was talking about is like psychologically speaking, is that our inclination is always to say yes. Right? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But other people, they need a little maneuvering in order to get them to say yes. But humans, by nature, have a bias towards yes. You just got to find out how to trigger it. So I started thinking about that. And I'm like, well, if we have that bias towards yes, that means that we were created with a bias towards yes. And if we were created with a bias towards yes, because we're created in his image and likeness, that means our father is created with a bias towards yes. If we want to say yes by nature and we're created, then our creator put it there. And he put it there because that's his nature. Jesus' inclination towards his children, people, is to say yes. Oh, all the promises of God are what? And amen. All of the promises of God are yes. And so be it. That's what amen means. So be it. He has a bias towards yes, but he can't say with me. He can't say yes. Come on. He can't say yes. If I don't ask him, you can ask him in the rawest, most primitive, most immature way. And he does not condemn you for the way in which you ask. 
What he will take is what you have asked, and he will refine it. You may be asking him amiss, and the Lord's going to come back, and he's going to work with you. You're not going to get what you ask because it's off target. But what the Holy Spirit will do is he will work with you to refine the desire. He will work with you. But he can't work with you if you don't offer him anything to work with. He, he can't do it. So if you're not giving him anything, you've got to give him something, and God will work with what it is that you're offering him. He will refine the desire. So you can ask him. You can go, well, I don't feel like I'm mature enough to ask God for anything. I don't feel like I'm sophisticated. When I ask him, I feel like, I feel, you know, like I'm not really asking the right way. They're, they're, what, you know, just ask him and present it to him and let the Holy Spirit minister back to you. You've got to give room for the Holy Spirit to speak into the things in your life. You have to present it and let the Holy Spirit speak into it. And so let the Holy Spirit speak into the things of your life and things will change. Next slide. So this guy sees his life and his purposes falsely. He says, give me what is mine. The Bible says he came to himself. He presents himself. The father never recognized him as that. He never saw him as the son saw himself. He never saw him that way. We see ourselves as sinners. You think Jesus sees you as a sinner if you're in Christ? Do you honestly think that he looks at you and goes, sinner, welcome to the table? He never sees you that way. He never leaves you that way. There's perspectives within the church that goes, that go, here's the cross. They go past, present. And that's the perspective or the theology, theological position of the majority of the churches in America. Reformed doctrine rules our culture. And the perspective of a reformed doctrine teaching church is past, present. So your present is always reflected back through your past. You're a sinner. Oh, we're sinners. We're sinners. I'm saved now, present, but man, I'm a sinner. I've always been a sinner. God, oh my gosh, man. Miracle that Jesus saved me at all. We're sinners because their perspective of God, their perspective of their faith, and their perspective of the scripture is always past, present. That, say it with me. That, I'm going to set some people free here this morning. That is not heaven's perspective. It is not. It might be the vicar's perspective. It may be the denomination's perspective. It may be some ignorant pastor's perspective. I didn't say uneducated. I said ignorant. There's lots of educated people that hold that position. But they are ignorant. They don't know what it is that they are talking about. The Holy Spirit, here's where we want power. I'm going to show you where the power resides. The power does not reside. That's why these churches are dead as doornails. They have uh, they have, I forget my word. I use the word. I can't remember my word. But what they don't have is they don't have fullness. They don't have fullness. They have limitation. So while there's an experiential part of their faith, it's extraordinarily limited because the power of the Holy Spirit does not operate in the believer's life past, present. The Holy Spirit operates present, future. Amen. And until you get that, the river doesn't flow. Who you are now and who you are becoming is how Jesus works. He does not partner with your past. He doesn't. What sin? He doesn't see it. You say, well, wait a minute. Next slide. How is he working in my life? You know, what God is dealing with you on, right? Here we go. The active work of the Holy Spirit is to validate your identity and call you into destiny. That's what he's doing. He's doing nothing but that. He's not going, well, Kevin, you've just been a sinner for 20 years. What the Holy Spirit may do he may point out some areas in your life that are not in line with your identity. 
That's called conviction. And his conviction over you is not to point out to you that you're a sinner and you just can't keep it together. His idea is this is not who you are. Why do you carry that attitude? Why do you do those things? This is not who you are. That area of your life, you don't have revelation of your identity. That area of your life, you do not have a full revelation of who you are. Identity will solve so many of the problems within the believer. We see ourselves. I was telling Sherry, I was around a guy, and he said, all he ever said was, I'm an addict, I'm an addict, I'm an addict, I'm an addict, I'm an addict. And I'm not talking about saying it as a mantra. This guy, like, really believed that's what he was. So what do you think he did? You think he did drugs? All the time. Because he never could bring himself to see himself as a son. We, we take, this is how we do addiction counseling, but we just got to bring you in here. And man, you just got to hold on until Jesus comes. Just sink your teeth. Just, just hold on until Jesus comes. Man, it's a little bit more than holding on until Jesus comes. I'm all for holding on until Jesus comes, but I'm a little bit more about understand yourself as a son. Is that your nature? Then why are you doing that? I don't know. Well, maybe there's some resolved issues you got to deal with. There's, there, there's lots of reasons. There's things that maybe need to happen. But the point is, is the shifting of the perspective. Because nothing's going to happen until the perspective changes. Nothing. Nothing. You see yourself that way, you're always going to be that way. Well, I'm just a lowly sinner. I was a worm. You know, no longer a man. God help me. That's not, that's not how heaven's working. Holy Spirit is activating your identity and calling you into destiny. And if you don't believe it, you just try it. Amen. You just try it. You start seeing yourself as a son and start taking your rightful place. And you know what's going to come over you? Power. Power. Not, not guilt and shame and lament and I can't do it. Uh, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He'll accept the repentance, and sometimes we need to give it back to him. Lord, I screwed up. I did this. Yeah, give me that. Okay. So thank you, Kevin, for giving me that and acknowledging that. Therefore, now I want to give you something back to you. That is not who you are. Let me tell you who you are. Amen. Repentance means to return. We return, and then Jesus gives us who we really are. Repentance also comes from the idea of penthouse. It means go up high and see it differently. Amen. Repentance means to return. And to rise up and see it differently. It's where we get the word penthouse from that word. Penthouse is the highest place in the building, right? You get a whole different perspective when you go to the penthouse. Right? It's one thing to see the condo on the fifth floor. It's another thing to go up to the 35th floor and look out the window of that condo. You're like, wow. You got a panoramic view. See it differently. Jesus is no longer dealing with you on the basis of your sin. He isn't. He's dealing with you on the basis of righteousness. He's not calling you in the condemnation of your sin. He's calling into into righteousness. This is what you're doing. This is what you need to be doing. The emphasis is on where you need to go. The emphasis isn't on what you've done. You understand the difference? There's not, it's not like he's denying what you do or where you're off, but his, his idea is not holding you in a position of that, of what you were. He's calling you into an identity and into, into forward. He's dealing with you on the basis of righteousness, not sin. The church is so sin conscious. If we're sin conscious, we either are not conscious of sin or we're extraordinarily sin conscious. Sin has its place. You know, someone would say, what about sin, righteousness, and judgment? Yeah, but the context of that verse relates to the unbeliever. Convict the world, cosmos, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not the Christian. The Christian is the relationship and the conviction of identity. What we allow is we allow the devil to impact us and imprint as if he were the voice of the Father. We let the devil speak to us way more than we let the Father speak to us. 
When the voice is coming over you or guilt, shame, and condemnation, I guarantee you, and I have this on strong authority, that is not the voice of the Spirit. He does not speak in guilt, shame, and condemnation. It's not that he doesn't shine a light on it. He does. But the Holy Spirit's there. Can I pick you up? Can we go forward from here? Can you, can you come up? That's how he works, man. I'm telling you, there is therefore now no condemnation. Either that's true or it's not. If that's not true, then we all need to go find something else to do. He's dealing with it on the basis of righteousness. Anything the Holy Spirit reveals is for the revelation of an upgrade. He's going to press into your attitude and he may show you you have a problem with your attitude. That attitude is a deficiency in the nature of your understanding. That is not who you are. It's not who you are. He asked the, fa- the father asked the older son, he said, why are you angry? Everything's yours. Why? You ready? Hold on. Hold the chair. Why am I jealous? Say it with me. Why am I jealous? It's all mine. God is no respecter of persons. What he does for one, he'll do for another. This is what the Bible says. The father asked the older son, why are you angry? Why are you jealous of your older brother, of your younger brother? It's all yours. You haven't asked me. Jesus is dealing with you in areas to upgrade. You walk in anger. You walk in fear. You walk in worry. You walk in self-consciousness. I want to upgrade you. You walk in hopelessness. You walk in poverty. You walk in whatever it is. Fill in the blank. I want to upgrade you. Well, if God wants to provide, you know, he's just going to provide. I don't believe that for nothing, man. I believe that grace is in the eye of the Lord. And if you will get in line with what God is looking at, the provision will come. It will come. If you want to get in line with what the Lord is looking at, what are you looking at, Father? There's some basic things that he's looking at. So the first thing, and they're not, he's looking at his word. So get in line with his word. He's looking at it. Grace will come. There's a lot of things I could get into it with you, but I won't. But power and grace, is, it's found in the eye of the Lord. What is he looking at? Now, what are you looking at? Now, what is the culture looking at? What is the Lord looking at? Well, that might require me to actually ask him. Yeah, it might require you to ask him. And it actually might require for you to wrestle for an, for, for an answer or wait for an answer or push beyond what you see and think and understand. It may require you to shift the way that you perceive. The Holy Spirit is working on you for an upgrade. He is not condemning the Christian. He is upgrading the believer, calling you to a higher level. This is what it means to be seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is why. He didn't put you on the ground with Christ Jesus. We're not in the grave with Christ Jesus. We're not on the cross with Christ Jesus. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus for the purposes of seeing with a better perspective. Can I get a witness? It's what he wants. We seats us up high that we could see. We could know, upgrade. He identifies areas in your lives that are not in line with, his, with your identity. Last slide, I believe. Maybe not. <laughs> Holy Spirit's not calling you out. He's calling you up. We can say that. Say, the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. is not calling me out. He's calling me up. So when the Holy Spirit's revealing something about your life, your perspective needs to see that God is upgrading me here. So what is it that you would have me to do that you would upgrade me towards? My attitudes, my actions, my inactions, you know, my beliefs, my thoughts, you're, you're pressing on me here. You're making me a little uncomfortable here. What is it that you're trying to do? I'm trying to show me you some things, Kevin, that are not in line with who you are. He's always making you into destiny, and he's always calling you into inheritance. And if you can see him that way, you will go with whatever he tells you. 
because you will understand that God is not working on my, on my evil. He's working on my good. He's calling me into identity. So the Lord wants me to deal with this because it relates to my identity. He's calling me into my destiny. So God isn't doing this to me because he's trying to hinder me. God is telling me this because it relates to my destiny. It changes the way you think and feel when you see the things rightly. Romans says, the Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit affirms areas in your life. He bears witness with these places. And what does it say? That we're his children. And if we're children, then we're heirs. So the Spirit of God is calling you into identity, as this verse would say, and is calling you into inheritance. You're a child of God, and you have an inheritance. Oh, yeah, when Jesus comes. No, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. Doctrines of men, not doctrines of the Bible. Sorry. If indeed we suffer with him, that we almost be glorified. Well, there it is, Kevin. We've got to suffer. The word suffer is the Greek word to understand and to go with. These things will happen when we understand what he's saying and we go with it. Do you understand the difference? That, that verse takes on a whole new meaning. Because we're like, suffering, oh, I'm just suffering. The glory of God's going to reveal through my suffering. The Greek, the original language of the text is not saying that. It is saying this will happen when you understand and go with Jesus says. Now, there may be suffering in that because you probably aren't going to want to. The suffering is not a physical ailment or manifestation. The suffering is against the will of the human or against the desire of the flesh. Do we get this? So it's where we get the word sympathize. Sympathize comes from that word suffer. I understand. This is what sympathy is. I understand with you. Let me journey with you. It is to understand and go with. So the things happen when we understand them and we go with it. Oh, this is good, man. I'm going to have to listen to this one again myself. This is good. <laughs> put off the old man. Put on the new. The gospel starts with the new and the complete. You're already born again. He doesn't work on the old man and make you new. You're already new. And you know what it is? This is how it works. I'm new. So now I get to practice being new. I'm righteous. So now I get to practice being righteous. He doesn't work on things to get you to a point. He's working on going, taking you forward. He's not going into your past to bring you into the present. He's dealing with you in the present to bring you into the future. That's what he's doing. You're already righteous. Now you get to practice being righteous. You're already holy. Now you get to practice being holy. You're already new. Now you get to practice being new. Well, how does that happen? Through the Holy Spirit. Can't happen without this. That's... The whole purpose of the Holy Spirit is the activation of the promises of God. The Holy Spirit comes to bring the reality of heaven to the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit comes to bring the reality of everything Jesus said and did and manifest it into a reality. That's the reason why we have the Holy Spirit. That's the reason why he's given. As Christians, we can experience measure. There's my word. Churches that deny certain aspects of this, they experience measure. They never experience fullness. Churches with a perspective of past, present, experience measures. People can get saved in those churches. Good things can happen for people in those churches. Good things can happen, well, they don't even do, put it on the churches, put it on the plea. People who hold those beliefs, they can be saved. People who hold those beliefs, good things can happen to them. They're, but they're only experiencing measure. Release the fullness. I'm sorry. If there's a river, I want to find it. If there's a fountain that flows from Emmanuel's veins, well, I want to drink from it. If there's a full, I'm not interested in measure, man. Say this with me. Anybody, Anybody can, have measure. can have measure. Only the few, Only the few will understand fullness. understand fullness. Fullness is there, man. It's not that everybody can't have it. It's there. But few will find it. As Christians, we can experience it. Last slide. Or we can experience fullness. Oh, we got to take communion. I completely didn't. That, wow, that was my last slide. 
Did you guys get anything out of this? Yeah? We're going to take communion because I'm late. I'm long. We're going to experience the fullness. Communion, again, is designed to be an experiential process the way it was originally designed. God wants you to experience your faith. That's why we have a baptism. Baptism is a physical experience, isn't it? Right? You don't spiritually go into the water, although that's what you do to get saved. But baptism itself is a physical experience because God wants to experience the reality of what it is that he's done for us. The idea behind the, the communion was, the, was, it was to be wine and bread. Wine being the rush or the presence of the Spirit. Like when you, you ever drink wine, I'm not encouraging you to drink wine, but if you ever have, you feel a... And that's what the wine was designed to do, that when the Christian took the wine, they would experience... They would have an experience. When they ate the bread, they would feel a fullness. And so the idea was that what God has covered, what God has done for us, and what he has filled us with. And so Jesus wants us to experience his fullness. So what we're going to do, Jody's going to play. And we're going to make our way out and around. You guys, if you've been here for a while, you know. Just grab the, grab the cracker, grab the element, and bring it back. We'll pray over it, and we're going to take it together.